You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, again, as we refocus our attention on your word, help us to understand it. And Lord, beyond just grasping it intellectually, help it to be transformative for our own lives and be the the catalyst for a missionary zeal that each of us needs to have to share this truth with others. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 24. You know this story probably very well, so we don't need to go through it in detail, but you understand in Matthew chapter 23, he had been uh, in the temple for the very last time before his death, and he had really had had it out with the religious leaders of the day, and Matthew chapter 23 concludes, well, in verse 38, see, your house is left to you in what condition? Desolate. Desolate. Right? Now, contrast that, of course, you know that when Jesus went to the temple earlier in his ministry, he had called it, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations, right? But now, it's your house, and it's in what condition? Desolate. Jesus, the glory of Israel, was walking out of that temple, the earthly temple. And he was about to become that Passover lamb who was slain and enter into the heavenly sanctuary, the great original be our great high priest, right? He's transitioning out, essentially, right? But his disciples didn't grasp that. And so they call his attention to those buildings still. Verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 1, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. <laughs> I, I don't know why I find that interesting. But he's just been in the temple. He's visited the temple many times. He's cleaned out the temple. He remembers the temple. He's very familiar with the buildings of the temple. But he just kind of laid bare to the root those religious leaders, and he walks out, calls it your temple, calls it desolate, and he's walking, he's literally walking away, and they say, why don't we turn around? (laughs) He's like, do you see? I mean, it's so big, and it's so pretty, and it's so, like there, you clearly, their minds are set on this temple. And they wanted to make sure Jesus was corrected to see what they saw to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to him, I I don't know why we just kind of breeze by this, but he's like, do you not see? He's like, why don't you take a look at the temple? Do you not see all these things? Assuredly. Now, I don't think that Jesus would ever lie. The Bible says specifically, God cannot lie. But he says, assuredly, most assuredly, I say to you, not one stone we left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And he's not talking about stones in the world. He's talking about that temple building, the buildings of the temple. He said, that thing, you've got every hope and dream and every, you know, all of your heart is set on, that is coming down. Was Jesus here speaking metaphorically? Was he speaking in some sort of spiritual thing that doesn't have a... No, he means... Look at the building. It's going to come down and be leveled. That's what you see. 
How would that message land in the hearts of disciples who put all their hopes and dreams in the temple? That would be rather unsettling. It would be jarring. It would be alarming. So, verse 3, Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him, how? Privately. They're like, psst, Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> that, uh, that temple knocking down thing? What, what was the real meaning behind that? He's like, it's coming down. Tell us, when will, and what's the, notice their first question. When? They want to know the time. Just like people now want to know. If there's this big event coming, when will it happen? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? From a plain reading of this passage, what is it evident that these disciples have conflated? What two events have they put together in their mind? Right. The only thing that could destroy the temple is the whole end of the world. And that's when you're coming back in glory and you're going to sit on your throne and knock down. So they've wrapped all of this in one big expectation. Mercifully, Jesus doesn't say, well, let me explain. First, I'm going to, not I'm going to, but this building's going to get knocked down. Then fast forward 2,000 years. So what he does is he speaks to both issues in one set of answers. So he talks about the signs to watch for. And the very first one he says, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one does what? Deceives you. Now I think it's fascinating that of all the things that we typically refer to as signs of Christ's coming, and they are signs when we talk about uh, uh, military conquest and, and, and strife, and we talk about economic uh, unrest, and we talk about you know, society going down the drain. Those are signs of Christ's coming. But is that the first one Jesus mentions? No. The first thing he warns people about is deception. Specifically, spiritual deception. Because if we read in verse 5, For many will come, what are the next three words? In my name, saying I am the Christ, and will deceive many. If you're following along, we're roughly following the 2A outline, the signs of Christ's coming. And... Let me be careful as I say this. Well, let's just discuss very briefly, what does this passage mean? What could this passage mean? For, I mean, let's just say, how have we typically explained this passage? What is an example of the false that he told to watch out for, the deceptions that we should be watching out for, especially those coming in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many? My husband was actually bringing this up this year, and because we've always been taught that, you know, somebody will come saying that I am the Christ, he's like, he's saying, well, what if they're saying that I am the Christ, like mm -hmm. Jesus is the Christ, right. saying Jesus is the Christ, not I am the Christ. Right. So they're saying they're Christians, mm -hmm. you know, not just like 
the... Right, that they are not the person of Jesus yeah. themselves, right? Yeah. But we typically, and there's probably, and I want to say legitimately there's a place for, like when we talk about cult leaders and religious offshoots with a Christ-like figure to deceive people away from the truth, we have only a handful of examples, and I'm sure there's tons of them out there that I'm just not aware of, right? But can you name off the top of your head cult-like figures who've led people in a... Jim Jones. Always Jim Jones, right? David Koresh. De Jesus Miranda, however you say his name, yeah? Yeah, Jim Jones just mentioned that. Guyana, the whole drinking the Kool-Aid, that's where we get the phrase from, you know? Uh, Marshall Applewhite, yeah, and that, that was another one. Well, a lot of people, it, it, there's a lot, maybe not in our context know him, but he's a well-known one in, in other contexts. Okay, but I mean, we can rattle off a handful, but I'm not quite sure that Jim Jones and Marshall Applewhite and these guys are the main thing that Jesus said to watch out for in the last days. Are these Now, let's be clear. Watch out for crazy cult leaders. For sure. But I want to be clear about that. <laughs> they are deceptive, they are dangerous, have nothing to do with it. Absolutely. But to your point, yeah, punctuation wasn't there. So for do we know of a famous passage in scripture that we take issue with punctual, punct, what's the word I'm looking for? In regards to punctuation. How about that? All right. Leave your finger in Matthew 24. Let's go quickly to Luke 23. Right. Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke 23. Jesus is on the cross. He turns in verse 43. And I don't care what version of the Bible you have, King James, New King James, NIV, whatever, someone volunteer to read it and read it as the punctuation demands. And it will feel strange to your tongue because you know you're going to be saying things, reading word for word from the Bible that are not correct. <gasps> I know it's just so odd, right? But somebody read it as the punctuation demands. Who's our volunteer? Now this is a dangerous one. He's like, I don't want to. Thank you. Go ahead, ma'am. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. Assuredly. It's the same assurance he gave Matthew 24, right? Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the tricky thing is, I don't even know how to ask the question. It feels like heresy to even form the words. Is this passage correct? And you don't even want to put a yes or no on it because you say yes, you're endorsing false teaching, but if you say no, you're undermining confidence in Scripture. What? We, of course, know what we're talking about. It's the punctuation isn't there. If you just slide the comma over one place, all of the cognitive dissonance resolves and everything is harmonious. And it reads like this. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And we're all like, Amen. Now, why is that important? Because notice we didn't change one word of that passage, but the meaning changed significantly when we addressed the punctuation. 
Go back to Matthew 24. And I don't want to make too big of a point on this, okay? Look at Matthew chapter 24 and read verse 4 again. If you took out the quotation marks and just let everything be the same. And it might change how you view this passage. Verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 5. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. <laughs> many will come in my name saying that I am, he's speaking from first person, will come in my name and I am the Christ. So they're not, you could read it to say they're going to come in my name saying that I, Jesus, am the Christ, which is a good thing to affirm, and from that Christian veneer from that perspective will use that platform to deceive many. Or you could say there are people who are going to come saying that dum -da -dum, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And that's what I'm saying. And I want to be clear. That is a thing that has happened. There have been crazy Christ-like figures that have led people literally to their death. We should watch out for that. Christ claiming, not Christ like, you know, Christ impersonating, you know what I'm saying? And so there are dangerous people who will probably advocate themselves in a messianic figure, as a messianic figure, okay? But as we look at the rest, and I don't want to make a big deal of this, but I do want to at least lay the possibility out there. As we look at the rest of what Jesus tells us about end time events leading up to his second coming, he does warn us over and over and over. In fact, the time prophecy most often mentioned in the Bible is, anybody know? Somebody mumbled it. 1260 days, or the time, times, and half times, the 42 months, right? And that's all about the little horn who has a mouth and speaks great things, sits in the seat of God, claiming to be God, so that he's regarded as God, doing it in his name. To me, it seems a very apropos application to see a religious power, a supposedly Christian one, who will lead many astray through deception, being the great thing he's warning against. But regardless, I want to establish the foundation here that Jesus' primary concern in the last days was deception from those, apparently, they're all coming in my name, claiming a Christ-like perspective, right? But will lead people astray. Yes, ma'am? You could say something like that. I'm sure, I'm, so... I, yeah, exactly. Coming in my name, like they're coming with the vestments of Christianity, right? The accoutrement of Christness. Actually, right, right, right. And and I find it fascinating that everybody out there that teaches various views that are exactly the opposite of what Jesus teach are doing it as Christians, Bible believing. Why are there so many denominations? You see what I'm saying? It's like so like. That's one of those questions that hang people up about Christianity. If you guys are all following Jesus, why there's so many different... Right. Apparently many have come yeah. claiming this, but deceiving many. And by the way, to tie it back to that little horn, what does the Bible prophecy say about that? All of those... Why are so many denominations, right? Because those are the daughters of the 
See what I'm saying? I think that bigger spiritual flow of deception is probably what's being referred to. But I don't want to make it a point of doctrine. I'm just throwing it out there. Apostate, that's what I'm referring to. Apostate Protestantism, right. So what I want to be is a biblical Christian. When we follow Christ, I want to make sure it's actually what Christ said in his word. Right? Okay, let's continue on. All right, so false Christ, false prophets, false teaching, and deception in the name of Jesus. He said that's a paramount warning. Watch out for that. But he goes on, Matthew 24, verse 6. And, that is a, additionally, beyond just that, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now, I think that's a particularly interesting thing. I, I, when I was growing up, I didn't understand that. Like, you either have war or you have peace. What is this nebulous war-ishness, this rumor of war? <laughs> but let me ask you a question. Just in our country here, are we currently at war with anyone? Don't, don't tell me, like, you know, a war against drugs and a war against crime and a war against power. I mean, an actual, like, taking up arms and flying over and shooting and killing people. A, a military conflict. Are we engaged in one? How many of them we are engaged in right now? That's what I'm saying. Nobody in our... It used to be we were either in World War II or we were not. It was, it was, there was Vietnam, there was Korea, you can name them, the Civil War, and then there was a day that it stopped that you were either at war or at peace. One of the things I've noticed, I don't know. I don't even know anymore. Are we currently engaged in active conflict? Oh, yeah, kind of. Which countries? I, I, there's a whole list. Of, I, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I don't even know. And so there's a spirit of, and this isn't a theological term, but war-iness. <laughs> right. And, and we're not getting into the political scheme, and I'm not talking like right-wing, left-wing, libertarian, any of that kind of, I'm not going there. But my point is, that I'm just using our country, right? But you take that to every other country, there are currently, it's not like there used to be a time when things were at war, or you weren't at war. But increasingly, there are wars, but there are also these war-like contentions and conflicts that are constantly percolating and not necessarily declared. And, they're, but, and it keeps kind of expanding. So there's this, in fact, we might not have as many open and declared wars, but there's a war-like you know, reality that we're living in now. And it's increasing. Anyway, we've got to keep going. Famines, of course. Oh, but, but that's important. We'll come back to this verse 6. But all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So when we think of, will the world end in a giant war? People have thought that, especially when nuclear weapons were a big deal, which I guess they're always a big deal ever since they existed. They, by nature, are a big deal. But people say, well, that's, that's going to be the thing. You know, they think of the Cuban Missile Crisis and communism and all this kind of stuff and the, and the space race and who can get all these nuclear weapons and we can kill ourselves how many times over. People think, oh, it's all going to end in a big bang here. But Jesus said, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of war, but the end is not yet. Okay, so we know from the Bible it's not going to all end with a big old war. There will be war and rumors of war as a sign, but that's not the end. It's a sign of the end. Let's keep going. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it's uncanny how this works out. I used to not, oh, this is so guilty, but I used to not enjoy preaching about the signs of Christ coming. Because you have to talk about earthquakes. You have to look back and like, all right, there was the Lisbon earthquake, okay, and then there was the big, you have to like look at these one, and you think of famines, you have to go back, but, and start, war. but now, it's almost so easy. You could literally just read through what we've just seen here, wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, earthquakes, go on down the list, and then open up your Google News Feed and just read it. For instance, what, let's take our country right now. Is there any concern about, you know, drought and famine and running out of things like water? <laughs> or heat waves and climate change, all that kind of stuff? Is that on people's minds? Sure. It's incredible. Famines. And you see it in there, and you can talk about these things. According to one UN report, one-sixth of the world population suffers from chronic hunger, resulting in 3.5 million deaths a year. And you can look up all these statistics about food shortages and clean water needs and, and, and malnutrition and drought and hunger. And it's just, it's horrific. And you would think, with all of our modern technology and all of our economic prosperity, surely we could feed the world. But it just isn't happening. <laughs> So, that's the thing. But let's go to the one that's really probably on people's minds. Right after famines, what's the next one? Pestilences. What's, the, what's an English word for pestilences that's more common? Diseases. COVID, that's the one, yeah. People are thinking about diseases for sure. And even, I think, I don't know if Pastor Howard noticed this, but in these notes right here, let me read to you what's in these notes. We are plagued with many relatively new diseases like AIDS, avian bird flu, SARS, West Nile virus, swine flu, and mad cow disease. You know it's not on the list? COVID. Because <laughs> these notes are really, really old. They're from like last year. <laughs> but how much has the world changed when it comes to pestilence in just the last, say, year and a half or so? Isn't it crazy? That it seems like swine flu and SARS, oh, that was, <laughs> that was way back. Now we got these new, and now we're talking about variances and vaccines, and oh my, the world is ripe with concern about things like climate change and running out of food and water and diseases running rampant and earthquakes and natural disasters. I'm just saying that. What? All right, we're getting, we're, hang on, just, we'll get there. Yes. Speaking of which, the very next one. I don't watch news because it gives me anxiety and depression. Well, that could, uh, for your own mental health, I that's good. don't have cable. And you've heard the thing that if you read the news, you're, in, you're misinformed, you're, and if you don't read the news, you're uninformed? Yeah. Yeah. We're not getting political, so <laughs> I'm not allowing it to go there. All right. But the next one on the list, earthquakes in various places, right? And that used to be another one. You think of the big earthquakes, but now we can think about, you know, the, the one in Japan and think about the one in the, in the Indian Ocean that killed, you know, think about Haiti. I mean, you can go down the list of all the, and we're not just talking about just a big shaking and some buildings destroyed. We're talking about massive tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people dying in moments. I count volcanoes, sure. When Yellowstone blows, that will capture the interest too, for sure. 
I, I would imagine it'll also be a flood, it'll be global warming, it'll be a best, it's going to probably count all the things. Luke 21, let's look at that too. The, you know, Jesus talks about these, the record of this is in more than one gospel. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus refers here in verses 25 and 26 to something similar. And this one invokes the oceans, interestingly enough. And there will be signs, and this is verse 25, Luke chapter 21, verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. We'll come back to that in a minute. And on earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. And you wouldn't, and you would think like, oh, those are just the, you know, simpleton religious people who don't know science. But trust me, those people who are non-religious and scientifically literate, they're panicking too. In fact, there's a lot of fear in our world. Again, whether it's about military things or the economic, whatever's going to happen next, or the ecological crisis, or the whatever the thing is, the medical crisis. You would think with all of our, especially if we believe in evolution, we're getting better, right? And we should be, and we've got science on our side. We can fix problems. We can feed the world. We can cure diseases. We can calm the storms. We can right the wrongs. But it seems like the more we advance, we should be getting better. But counterintuitively, hmm. Now, back to Matthew chapter 24. After he lists off all these things, and again, he's repeated that these are not the end themselves. People think, oh, we're going to end an ecological disaster. We're going to end or an environmental or an economic collapse or a military. He lists off those things and specifically said those are not the things that will end the world. So why list them off at all? Because they're signs leading up to the thing that will end the world, which is the second coming of Jesus. Okay, So the things themselves are not the things to fear, they're the things to watch for so we don't fear. Does that make sense? Okay. Now Jesus explains this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8. All these, and he lists off all the things, he puts an umbrella around them. all these things we just discussed are the beginning of sorrows. Now the Greek word there, I don't know Greek, I took Greek, but that doesn't mean I know Greek. Let's be clear. But the Greek word there for sorrow isn't just like boohoo sadness and crying. It's a specific type of experience that is that birth pain, right? That's the, the contract. Now, I have never experienced that. Praise the Lord. My wife, on the other hand, has three different times. And I'll share just a little insight into our life then and, and what it was like. That, so... When she was pregnant with our first child, and that was her first experience with pregnancy, and it was certainly my first experience with someone experiencing pregnancy. You know there's that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting? Yeah. She read that. I didn't. I didn't know what to expect. But I'm a guy. I'm not going to read a book. I'm just going to go through it and learn from my mistakes. And... In the first few weeks and months, 
my wife actually lost weight while she was with child, at least for the first probably two-thirds of the pregnancy. And she, she enjoyed being pregnant. It was great. I thought that was crazy, but um, she did. But the initial phases, in the earliest weeks and months, um, she, there was no visible evidence of a child at all. None. But I would come home, and she'd just be laid on the couch. I'm like, what are you doing? And she'd say things like, I'm tired. And here's my part. I'm like, from what? <laughs> what? She's like, well, I'm carrying a baby. I said, okay, yeah, but like this? Like, how, how what? I, what? And I, I was expecting that you're going to have all those tired when you're you know, out to here and all that kind of stuff. That makes sense. But you're tired from that? What? You know, I, and I didn't know how to communicate well my frustrations. And so, anyway, it was good for both of our characters. But she could sense something was different. And she was experiencing things that on the outside didn't necessarily reflect the experience, but she knew there were some triggers happening, there were some things moving, there were differences in her that I wouldn't see from the outside, but when she's in it, she could tell it, okay? Now, she couldn't say like, oh, I feel like, and she started making it, she had no idea when that baby was coming, but something was stirring, is the point. And he compares that, to, now, as we go along in the, in the birth, it's, okay, then you start to show, and then you start to have, you know, back actual joint pain because there's all things are different. I don't know. I'm, I'm a guy. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just telling you what she said. She went through the bean burrito phase too. Like she didn't want anything except for Taco Bell bean burritos. So I just go get a bunch of them and keep them in the freezer. And if she wanted a burrito, I'd fix her a burrito. Anyway, it was weird. Um, so then, but as it got. Closer. Now, the thing about this, when Henry, he's our first child, was, plus we didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. We didn't find out until, well, we eventually found out. The jig is up. But um, <laughs> while before he, he was born, because she wanted to have the excitement of, it's a boy or girl. What? You know, and before, she wanted to have something that's kind of a, a carrot to dangle in front. Like, oh, I can get through this and it's exciting. There's a, there's a mystery to unravel. Okay. So we didn't know. But we knew there was a baby in there for sure, and praise the Lord, it was just one. And um, you could start to see the signs then a little bit, and, and I took a class at Southern that just happened to fall, because we were living in Florida at the time, but it just happened to fall during her window of due date time. So we were living in this little apartment on the campus of Southern, and the baby is, and there was a time, but it wasn't quite on time because it's only so accurate you can be in those estimations. And so she felt it was time to give birth, but apparently the baby didn't feel the same. And so we were all just hanging out there. And um, she, she went to, to get a, 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 a massage and she said, aren't there some things you can do to make this thing come along? Aren't there some? And then like, oh yeah, I can do that. And they started rubbing her feet in a certain way, and right there on the table, she had her first contraction. She's like, okay, that's enough, that's enough. <laughs> it worked, it worked. Um, so anyway, and, and then they tell you, when you have your first contraction, you don't just race to the hospital, right? You guys, what are you supposed to do? 
You wait, you wait waiting for the next one, right? So you don't just need a thing, you need a sequence of things, right? And that sequence has a process in which it manifests itself. So you have one and then you time them out. And you know that two things are going to happen with those labor pains. What's going to happen? They're going to increase how? In frequency and intensity, right? So they're going to get closer together and they're going to be more pronounced. And, and at some point, you're supposed to be able to, like, you can breathe through this one, you can talk through this, you can walk, and then other ones, if you can't talk through it, you're, I mean, it's even at the door, okay? And that's essentially what happened, uh, at least with the first one. The first one, just for what it's worth, the first one took seven hours. Uh, the second one took two hours. And the last one took just under one hour. And that was, that was an experience. Whew. By the way, we did those at home. And the midwife didn't make it in time. So I have been there. I have seen, I have seen some things, man. And it is. <laughs> I got some PTSD from all that. But anyway, but Jesus said it's going to be like that. There's a long lead up. But as it gets closer, it's going to be more frequent and more intense. And it's going to get more. And you know it's like that in the same thing. So when we talk about these disasters, these pestilences, plagues, and whatnot that are coming up on the earth, people will sometimes say, but there's been earthquakes. There's been tidal waves. There's been, I mean, didn't we have a pandemic in 1918? We've already dealt with We've had flu bugs. We've had rare. But the difference is not the event itself is a new thing no one's ever heard of. If he, it's like he's saying, there'll be a gobbledygook, then a bobbly bip, and they're like, what? What are these? Oh, you'll find out. No, he's saying things that people understood. There are such things as famines and pestilences and earthquakes, right? But they're going to be like earthquakes. And birth pains are going to be more frequent and more intense. So, for instance, how can you make an earthquake more intense? People will say, okay, well, there's been big earthquakes before. But what happens when the population goes up so big that when this earthquake hits, it's not just a few people out in a, but you have 100,000 people gone just like that. So the, the effects of the event are more intense. See what I'm saying? So earthquakes themselves haven't changed the nature of earthquakes, but the, in, the impact is more frequent and more intense. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Also, economic changes in the last days. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Let's take a look at that one real quick. And we need to save time because we want to get in the manner of Christ coming too. But we'll look at this very briefly. James chapter five, uh, James chapter, I'm sorry, yes, five, verses one through three. And I'll read this one here. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure. And notice what's the context of this economic warning in the last days. Is it possible that there will be an economic situation in the last days unique from other times in Earth's history? Sure there will be. In fact, if you keep going... Go on to Revelation. Well, let's just finish this passage here. Indeed, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. 
You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. You have does, he does not resist you. Now, that seems to be speaking to people who have luxuriated in wealth and riches and excess at the expense of others, right? A dis, dis, uh, uh, barity and, and wealth and all this kind of stuff. And in a very mean-spirited kind of terrible way, and then you go to, and specifically that's in the last days. Then you go to Revelation chapter 13, and you know that the economic thing there, it's in the context of the mark of the beast, but it says, and that no one shall may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So there is going to be, in the last days, the Bible predicts a crisis of economy as well. Let's go to another one. 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. Verse 1. I love how Paul starts this. He says, but know this. Anytime the Bible says, know this, what should we do? We should know this. That in the last days, there's our context again, perilous times will come. And we're like, yep, here comes the earthquakes, here comes the war. That's not what he's talking about here, is it? For men, now he's talking about people. He's talking about culture and society. Men will be lovers of whom? Themselves. Tell me if this does not describe our society that we're living in now. And by the way, you don't have to be a religious person to note that Culture and society is shifting beneath our feet as we speak. You think of the technological revolution and social media and all the different ways that people interact. Our basic human civility and decency is, is shifting. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that would be bad enough, it's just describing the world, but you really can't blame the world for being worldly because that's their thing. But then it goes on to say, Having a form of what? God, is it possible that people can think they're good while they're being bad? Yep. <laughs> In fact, people, you go knocking on doors, hey, if the Lord came tonight, oh yeah, I'd be fine. Why? Because I'm a good person. Regardless of what I do or what I think or what, how I act, I'm a good person. Right? There is this expectation that they, I've got a form of godliness, a self-righteousness, and I'm going to be fine when the reality is... Your actual character, actual behavior is exactly the opposite of whatever God says is good. Yes, no one's good but the Father. That's right. God is good. He gets to define what good is. True. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people, turn away. We could talk about all the different ways, and it's so tempting to do so, but the way that society is reflecting the very things that Paul prophesied, that in the last days this will happen. Let's, let's tie this together with another thing that Jesus said. Go back to Luke chapter 17. Again, we're talking about the, the conditions of society and character in these last days. 
Luke 17, let's go here. Starting with verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now what's interesting about this passage, I don't know that there's anything inherently wrong with eating, or drinking, or marriage. Now, obviously, certain things you drink or certain things you eat and certain marriages you add that, but you understand what I'm saying, but it seems to be indicating that there's just like, Dave, it's very much like the whole, all things go as they have, total disregard, even though Noah's up here preaching, there's a boat, get on the boat, the flood is coming, but they're, in spite of that warning, just going through the motions, living life for themselves, let me, all, society just flowing on down the path to perdition while God's man is out here saying about the boat, Right? Jesus is warning about those things. Let's go to Daniel chapter 12. Real quick. Daniel chapter 12. A well-known passage. Daniel, at the very end of his ministry, the last recorded message that he has in the book, receives this Communication from the Lord, where it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of what? The end, okay? So clearly the context of what he's about to say is a description of the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. All right, we are not going to take a long time on this, but very quickly, what does this passage mean? What have you heard it mean? What do you understand it to mean? And I'm not saying there's a right or wrong. I'm just curious. What is your, what is your reading of it? Okay, there might be running to and fro, preaching, proclaiming a message that's not accurate. Okay, it's a thought. Anybody else? Say busyness, a general busyness. Okay, in life, that's a good one. Anybody else? Scientific or technological advancements. Okay, clearly. Uh, that seems to be knowledge will increase. Knowledge of what? Well, clearly knowledge of a scientific, a technological knowledge is evident in the world around us. No doubt about it. Um, this is usually how in our evangelistic campaigns uh, you'll see an explanation of this. And I think there's a validity to that when we say that knowledge clearly has increased from the time when Daniel was writing. And, and uh Pastors will sometimes talk about how, like, in the, in the days of, even in Bible times, if, if, if someone wanted to ride across, even Old Testament time, let's say you wanted to ride across the, the empire of Babylon, what's the fastest way you can do it? Camel. <laughs> Maybe a camel or if you're really a horse. Okay. Fast forward to the time of the Roman Empire. If you wanted to cross the Roman Empire, what's the fastest way to do it? Sure, tied to a... Because the chariot itself is just going to sit still. <laughs> Got to have one horsepower, right? And maybe you put two horses there, two horsepower, but horse, that's your fastest way. Now let's skip forward to the, uh, the French Revolution. And there's chaos, and you wanted to run across France and get away. What's the fastest way? Horse. Paul Revere. Horse. <laughs> going out west, the Pony Express. Horse. And we're up to the 1800s. Right? Okay. That seems comically silly now. 
And, but even, you don't have to have an evolutionary perspective. Just in the, you know, 6,000 years of Earth's history we know of from the scripture. Only the last little slice has gone faster than horse. No problem. I thought that was like, that was a really good point. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, so clearly, I mean, travel and technology, and then we can talk about computers, and we've gone to the moon, and we've got weaponry, and we've got technology in our hands that was more powerful than what would cut in the back of a truck, you know, just decades ago. So clearly there is a, there is a self-evident increase of technological know-how. Knowledge has increased. However, I believe there's also a more primary application in this passage to he's talking specifically about closing up this book, but in the last days, knowledge will increase about what? The book, right? Men will want to and for. There's going to be a, an unleashing of a theological you know, advancement, if you will. And think about this. The book that Daniel sealed, of course, the book of Daniel, but it was a specific portion of the, like, for instance, was the book of Daniel sealed when it talked about Daniel's story of his life and going into captivity? Was that unknown until the last days? No, people knew that all along. I, honestly, Babylon was known, Medo-Persia, Greece. But there was a portion of the book of Daniel that was closed until the last days. And it was that portion dealing with Daniel chapter 8 and 1844 and the Day of Judgment, and all those kind of things, that was not understood until, and it just was, and by the way, William Miller preached this truth, but he wasn't the only one preaching this message. It just so happened that as the time prophecies of the 1260 days, that 1798 date was looming, about that time people started picking up their Bibles and going back and forth and comparing Scripture with Scripture and saying, wait a minute, if this means this, then that means, and they're starting to put the dots, and lo and behold, William Miller, most famously of them, starts studying Bible prophecy, and starts, wait a minute, so that means that, it, when we have the Millerite movement, the great second advent awakening, and now, the books of Daniel and Revelation correspondingly are open in a way, it's not like they've been physically sealed, but their minds understood what Scripture is teaching. And it only happened in these last days. It's like the Lord was waiting. It's like, okay, and go. And it opened up a flood of light on Scripture itself. Clearly, knowledge has been increasing in more ways than one. Now, that's the first one, by the way, that's positive. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Everything else is going to be bad, 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 intensely bad, very bad, painfully bad, and bad. And it's tempting to be like, boy, things are bad. Let's bear our heads for a word of prayer. <laughs> but you know, there's one amazingly wonderful sign of the end. Go back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now, Jesus' coming is the thing, of course, we're looking forward to, but a sign of his coming, even that precedes his arrival, is a good thing. Go to Matthew chapter, we just finished verse 8, all these are the beginnings of sorrow. And then he goes on to explain some more difficult things. And they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. That's not good news yet. <laughs> You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. 
And then many will be offended, many will betray one another, will hate one another. Still bad. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Going back to that deception thing he had warned about already, right? And because lawlessness will abound, as you've understood from yesterday's presentation, according to Scripture, what is lawlessness? <laughs> the breaking of the law. Sin is lawlessness. That's the biblical definition. Right? Sin is increasing, people are getting worse and worse, just what we describe, society is going down, all these things are bad. The love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. I love that. Amen. First of all, not only that you can endure, <laughs> so not, it's, all these things aren't going to wipe you out, at least not wipe everybody out. He who endures to the end shall be saved, and those will be saved out of it. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So when we look at the things, we talk about the signs of Christ coming, war and disease and earthquakes and whatnot, Jesus pauses in the middle of that list to say, now wait a minute, these are not the end. They are signs that it's getting close. What will mark the end is when the whole world gets the gospel message. Now I want to share with you as we close this section another corresponding passage that we don't often think about going with Matthew chapter 24. But go to Revelation chapter 14. Because remember what we just read there. He who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. Matthew chapter 24. And it circles us back around to the very beginning of our conversation of why do we preach these things? Why not just preach Jesus? I mean, Revelation chapter 14, after we've gone to Matthew chapter 24. Okay, Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, starting with verse 1, but we're not going to read through it. Just 1 through 5 is a description of the 144,000. What's another term we give to the 144,000? The remnant, right? God's last day church. So this is a picture of God's people in the last days. Now we've looked at all the signs in the world and society in the last days. And Jesus referred to some people in the last days who would endure to the end and give the message to the world, right? Give the gospel to the world. So in the context of the last days, there's the last day signs, there's the last day society, all those things, and then there's God's last day people who endure to the end and will be saved. Okay, Revelation chapter 14, the 144,000, God's last day people. We'll skip down to verse 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Clearly a description of God's faithful people in the last days, and in their mouth is no deceit. So if it's not deceit that's in their mouth, what is in their mouth? Truth. Interestingly enough, it goes immediately to verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? Everlasting gospel to do what with it? To preach to whom? To those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Isn't that exactly what we just saw in Matthew chapter 24? God's going to have a people who endure to the end and will be saved. 
And in that context, the gospel is going to go to all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end comes. So I'll keep this in mind. Matthew 24, verse 13, God's faithful people endure to the end and are saved. Then verse 14, the gospel goes to all the world, and what's the last step? And then the end will come. When you go to Revelation 14, the first thing it describes is go, those who endure to the end and will be saved. Then, what's the very next thing you see? The gospel goes to all the world. You're like, wait a minute, it's not the gospel. This is the three angels' messages. Don't for a moment say, why are we always focused on the three angels' message? Let's just preach the gospel. <laughs> According to the Bible's own definition, this is the gospel. Look at it again. Having the everlasting gospel to, pre to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying. So notice they have the gospel, and when they open their mouth, they're saying something. You don't need in multiple guesses on this. <laughs> if they have the gospel and they're going to open their mouth and say something, what's the thing they're going to say? The gospel. The gospel. <laughs> Saying with a what kind of voice? A careful, timid, quiet, nuanced, non-obtrusive, non-offensive voice. Nope. <laughs> Uses one word. Loud. Saying with a loud voice, fear God, and give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his judgment has come. Remember we talked about how every step of God's plan has a specific time? We don't know what the day and hour of his coming is. Do we know when his judgment is? Absolutely. We know when we're living in the time of the judgment. And according to the Bible itself, this is our present truth gospel message. What if John the Baptist just told about all the stuff that Jesus did in his childhood but never mentioned his public ministry was beginning? I would dare say he had not preached the gospel. If he just told the story of Jesus' birth and put on a Christmas pageant, that's not preaching the gospel. It's some good news, but it's not the good news. I submit to you that you better, if you're going to preach Jesus, you preach all of Jesus. Particularly what Jesus is doing now and what's soon to come on the world. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment hath come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. And to tie to yesterday's and to bring us to our break, this of course is the longest direct quotation in the book of Revelation from any other part of Scripture. Did you know that? Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Where does that come from? It comes from Exodus chapter 20, 8 through 12. The fourth commandment. Eight through 11. Fourth commandment. Say, friends, the gospel goes to the world, and that same Jesus who died on the cross is now preparing to return again. The hour of his judgment has come. So what do you do? You worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Mm. So the Bible urges us to wake up from our slumber. 
And yes, stop. It, by the way, all the denominations that came out of the Millerite movement who kept calculating times have since faded away. And if I'm not mistaken, the, I forget the name of the denomination, they kept, it was quite a sad history, but they kept setting another time and another time and another time until recently they said, there's, not only can we not know the time, we're not even sure if he's coming at all. But our security in the second coming is not calculating some time or having some complicated chart. Say, okay, we've known all the times up till now, we know where we are, and now we know what to watch for as we look forward to Jesus coming. Now what we're going to talk about next is resolving the manner of his coming. Did you know that there's different ideas of how Jesus will come? Yes, I'm sure you're very aware of that. We're going to talk about that after our five-minute break. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.